All right. So let's uh, let's before we dive into the message, let me just pray and um, ask the Lord to uh, just be with us this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for this opportunity to present your word. I just thank you for your word that you've given it to us and revealed it to us, um, that we would um, learn from you and learn about your ways. And Father, I thank you for the opportunity that you give us here on this earth as uh, we just learned in what Peter was teaching us through what uh, Charlie mentioned during the communion devotional, is that we are to strive to be holy. And I just thank you for the opportunity that you give us every day to become more holy and to be more like you. Father, I pray that we would uh, learn from your word this morning. Help us to have ears to hear. And Father, uh, empty me of, of myself and fill me with you that your word would be here today and, and not mine. And we just thank you for that. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart, when I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. That's from Psalm chapter 119, the first 16 verses. Today we'll be continuing our series that Greg started several weeks ago, studying the Ten Commandments, God's Ten Words. This week, we transition onto what some call the second table of the law, or the second tablet of the law. We're going to start talking about the, the, next, uh, the last five commandments. So we've spent the first five weeks studying the first five, and we'll transition this week. You've probably heard it said that these last five commandments can be interpreted as simply providing governance on our relationships with our fellow human beings. Now, while this is true, it cannot be ignored that these commands, these last five commands, come directly in context with the first five commandments. You can't have these without the first. Without the first five commandments, these last five are entirely negotiable. Think about that. Without the first five commandments, these last five are entirely negotiable. Because we know God as our creator because we submit to his sovereignty, and because we know his purposes, as revealed to us in Scripture, humans have dignity defined outside of ourselves and defined not by us, but by God. Think about it. Without God, human life has no claim to dignity. Other than what we define it as. And at that point, who's to say who has the final word? Our dignity 
our worth, our life is grounded in and defined by God and who he is. According to Genesis 1.26, which is the creation account, right? Humans are created in the image of God, according after his likeness. And this is our this is our foundation for the sanctity of life, the fact that we're created in God's image after his likeness. It's not simply a generalized or generic reverence for life. It is a reverence for sanctity of life, life made in the image of God, with the worth of that life grounded in the creator, not in the creature. And so, with this as our foundation, we're going to turn to the last five commandments here to teach us how to relate to each other if we're to glorify God and honor him. So our passage for today is Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, which provides us the sixth commandment. So I encourage you, please stand in honor of reading God's word. And I invite you to please read this with me. You shall not murder. Thank you, you may have a seat. This is the word of the Lord. You shall not murder. Pretty clear and simple, isn't it? Pretty clear. You shall not murder. You could even say it's short and sweet and gets right to the point. You shall not murder. In Hebrew, this command is actually only two words. Literally, no murder. Now, some of you may be reading translations that read, you shall not kill. Let me go on record here and clearly state that this is an an inaccurate translation of the Hebrew text. It's not that I believe that it's inaccurate. It is inaccurate, and it's misleading. I couldn't be more clear. So let me explain, right? The Hebrew word that's used here is ratzik, which is best translated as murder. This word is used sparingly throughout Scripture, and is mostly used when referring to well this passage and then also to cities of refuge for those who committed unintentional manslaughter. The Hebrew word that is translated to kill is an entirely different word, and that's katal, or katal. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's a different word. And it's used hundreds of times in Scripture. So we see that there's a clear difference between these two words. So it's no mistake that the word here is murder. In the case of this commandment, we're talking about the unauthorized, malicious, and intentional killing of human beings. Now, it's easy to read over this verse and agree wholeheartedly that it's wrong, right? Murder is wrong. You should, it should never be done, and it really, it only applies to the really, really, really bad people. Murderers, in fact, this is so readily agreed upon that we may even wonder why it's needed, why we need to put it in here. Why did God state it in this list at all? Shouldn't it be implied that this is awful? And after all, how many murderers are there in our midst? Yet here we find it in this list of ten commandments, and there's no question that this commandment is addressed to us. 
addressed to God's people. God wrote this to the Israelites, which is then by extension provided to us as believers. God never wastes his breath. Over the course of human history, humans have worked continuously to perfect the art of killing other humans. Technology. I'm an engineer, okay? So I can speak freely about this, I think. Technology, in many cases, has advanced in such a way as to fulfill this very purpose. From the stone, the sword, the spear, the arrow, the gun, the bomb, gas, the syringe, and even a pill. To be fair, some of these were developed for defensive purposes. Okay, I get that. Rather than for offensive purposes. But this still makes my point. Think about it. Technology is developed to protect others who have developed technology to murder. Who then develop technology to outmatch that technology developed for the same protection. It's a vicious cycle. Zbigniew Brzezinski, author of the book Out of Control, suggested that the 20th century alone, a century of sophistication and enhancement of civilization, he suggested that four human beings alone could be blamed for 175 million deaths. Hitler, Lenin, Stalin, and Mao. Albert Moeller puts it this way in his book, Words from the Fire. We are the surviving successors of a century that learned how to kill on a massive scale. The gulags, the holocaust, the killing fields of Cambodia, the slaughter of Rwanda and the Sudan, an entire industry of death. New words like genocide were created to describe a level of carnage that didn't exist prior to the 20th century. Now if that's too distant for you, let's bring it a little closer. How often do you see violence as a leading story in the news? Even our local news. It's so often, in fact, that we begin to get numb to it. It's just that's the day. How many homicides do you think occur each year, just in the United States alone? According to the FBI's website, on average, since the beginning of the 21st century, get this, since the beginning of the 21st century, around 15 to 17,000 per year, and that's just in our country. That's about 320,000 people murdered over the course of 20 years. If we continue this trend, by the end of the century, that will equate to roughly 1.6 million people murdered just in our country alone throughout the next century. Now, if that's not cl close enough for you, let's bring it even closer. Consider this statistic. By the age of 18, the average American child will have seen more than 80,000 murders depicted on television, film, and in video games. And yet too often we stand idly by, as if this is normal and isn't a big deal. Do we really agree that murder is wrong? Do we know our hearts the way God knows our hearts? It's no mistake that you shall not murder is a command in this list of ten words. And we must not take it lightly. So to break this down, I'm going to spend the next roughly 30 minutes here discussing what this command does not provide. I'm sorry, not prohibit. What this command does not prohibit. What it does prohibit. 
and what Jesus had to say about this command. All right, so let's dive right down into it. What this command does not prohibit. Now, I want to mention something here before I dive any deeper. 30 minutes is not enough time to cover the extent and depth and breadth of this topic. I'm not going to do it complete justice in just 30 minutes. My attempt today for you, my intent, is to provide you with a foundation for understanding what God declares to us is his command, the sin that we have as humans, all of us, and to provide you with an opportunity if you want to dive into this a little bit deeper, more passages for study. Okay? I am not going to be able to cover everything in the time that we have this morning. So this command does not prohibit self-defense. Self-defense. Exodus chapter 22, verses 2 through 3 says, If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. Okay, so here we see if a thief breaks, breaks into someone's house and is attempting their life, taking the, the life of that homeowner, that homeowner has the opportunity to, if need be, kill that thief. But there's a little bit of a clarifying feature here. You read that uh, verse 3. If the sun has risen on him, there shall be no blood guilt for him. In other words, if there's an opportunity for someone to see that maybe that wasn't really self-defense, then that person, the blood is on that person's head that took the life of the thief if there wasn't, if there wasn't a need for self-defense. It's amazing. If you study Exodus and Deuteronomy, you can see just how much of a lawyer God is, <laughs> really, because he just lays out almost every single type of uh, idea and loophole that we could come up with. He's got it laid out. Something else this command does not prohibit is capital punishment. In fact, this was instituted by God. So in Romans chapter 13, verse 4, Paul tells us that if you do wrong, be afraid. And so he's talking about God's servant here being the, uh, the rulers and authorities in the context of Romans 13. And in, chapter, in verse 4 he says, For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does, he does not bear his sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Exodus chapter 21, verse 12 reads, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. And then Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 reads, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Okay, so now here we see the connection provided to us by God. I didn't have to come up with it. It's right there. So what we get from this is that murder, really, if you think about it, is an insult to God. It's a personal attack on his dignity as creator and as God. By being made in God's image, 
We were created, we as human beings, were created to display God's glory. Being made in the image of God does not only give us as humans significant worth, we were created to be a reflection of God throughout creation. That is why he created us. So by robbing someone of their life, you are robbing God of his glory. Taking his creation and basically saying, God, you were wrong in creating this person. And you don't deserve to be represented here anymore. Who gave us that kind of authority? This is why the punishment for murder is death. God doesn't take it lightly. Another aspect that this command does not prohibit is war. Now let me caveat this. War as authorized by God or as an extension of defending peace and safety. Okay, so there's two different aspects of this, like I just mentioned. That first aspect is as authorized by God. And we see, this is a challenge that we have as believers when we're reading scripture. And I'm just going to be honest and blunt. We see in the Old Testament, God authorizing warfare. We do. Well, let's talk about that for a second. When it was authorized by God, the people or the nations who were being pursued by the Israelites, those who were being told to be pursued by the Israelites from God, God telling them that, had already fallen under the judgment of God. They had already fallen under the judgment of God and the wrath of God. And so in this case, rather than sending fire from heaven, his people, the Israelites, served as the instrument of judgment. And at that point, who has the right to say that God was wrong? Where does that place us with respect to God when we start saying God is wrong and that we know better? We're going to talk about that later and where that, what that means. Now, let me be very clear. Since the Old Testament, we have not been given the authorization for similar attacks. We have not. But God has given authority to the nations, leaders, and our government to protect its people, as we saw earlier in Romans chapter 13. Leadership does not bear the sword in vain. And, as we see in Revelation chapter 19, if you want to turn there with me for a minute, Revelation chapter 19, we will see that God will execute his judgment once and for all on the day of the Lord when Christ returns. And it will be a war. Revelation chapter 19 verse 11 reads, Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Then verse 17 through 21. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and his army. Think about this. The people of earth, the nations, aligning with the beast, standing in front of Jesus as if they're going to be able to take him on. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, 
who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Okay, so let's talk about what this command does prohibit. I talked about what it does not prohibit. Now let's talk about what this command does prohibit. Again, you shall not murder. So, obviously, within the, within the very verse itself, it's quite clear, this command prohibits murder. Okay, so, and then uh, throughout Exodus chapter 20, 21, and 22, and even, in, even through Deuteronomy, we pick up on exactly how God defines murder. Premeditated, intentional murder, one example. Intentional, but unpremeditated murder. We would call this voluntary manslaughter. So I didn't plan on it, but it happened. Reckless homicide, or involuntary manslaughter. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 1 through 13, we're not going to take the time to go there this morning, but in those verses in Deuteronomy chapter, one, or in chapter 19, there is a distinction between actual accidental death and death that's motivated by hatred or recklessness. So the example, if, I, if my memory serves me correctly, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 1 through 13, is if you're chopping down a tree and you're standing next to your coworker and the axe head flies off of the uh, axe that you're using to chop the tree down and hits your coworker and causes causes him to die. That's considered uh, accidental death, and you are not liable or you are not responsible for that. It is not reckless homicide or involuntary manslaughter. Reckless homicide and involuntary manslaughter, as we see later on in Deuteronomy chapter 19, is the problem is. And where you are held responsible is when it's motivated by hatred or recklessness. Speaking of recklessness, another one that the Bible makes clear is uh, prohibited with this command is negligent homicide. Negligent homicide. Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 8 says, When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. So in other words... There was a law established for people who had rooftops where you were two or three stories tall and they, they would be out on their roofs uh, in, um, leisuring and enjoying the sun. And if they didn't put a fence up around their roof and someone fell off, they, the owner of the house was responsible. It's the same type of law we have when we put fences around pools. Okay? There is actually a law that in many states that require you to put a fence around your pools to protect those to, from running in accidentally. Because then you would be held responsible. Negligent homicide. Exodus chapter 21, verses 28 through 29. When an ox gores a man or a woman's death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But get this. If the fox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall also be put to death. So if you know that your animal is causing trouble and is known for killing people, you probably ought to do something about it. And if you don't, you're responsible. Okay, so those are the various 
uh, definitions under, under murder. We're going to build upon this a little bit more and, and bring it a little bit closer to home with our, with our culture, but also we see references of this in Scripture. The first of these is suicide. I mentioned earlier, I'm not going to have time to get into the complexities and the details that it would, I would love to be able to get into with this sermon. But it is clear, suicide is prohibited under this command. It's self-murder. And I'm not trying to be insensitive. But if at a last resort, I can tell you that God looks at this that way, and it wakes you up, then I want to tell you. And we're going to show you some of the some of what motivates that later. Okay, these next few pieces, these next few topics that this command prohibits, we're going to see what really motivates that, and I just hope it wakes us up. So if we look at Job, we just studied Job, right? Job even cried out to God, take my life. What worth is to have anymore? And God rebuked him. It's the same mindset. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 139. Psalm chapter 139. The verse I want to point out here first is verse 14. The psalmist says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. By taking your life, you are robbing God of his glory. You are not a mistake. God was very deliberate and intentional in bringing you here. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. The next one on this list of what this command does prohibit is abortion. The verse just prior to that in in Psalm chapter 139, verse 13, says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And then if we read on, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 through 24, even gives a, uh, uh, how we should respond to uh, if, if a child dies from within the womb. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 through 24. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, there is, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, meaning to the child, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, Stripe for stripe. In other words, God's setting up, you will, reap the, the, you will be repaid in equivalent measure of what you have done. So, life, no more than life, 
It's just a scratch, no more than a scratch. <clears throat> and we see that in context to someone who causes a pregnant woman or a pregnant woman's child uh, to be harmed. Okay, so those are the those are the two areas that we pick up on the fact that God views, and, and there's others, that God views life in the womb as life. Now a question comes up that's related to this, actually, um, which is, some of may, may be surprised, is what about rape? What about rape? What do we do then? I want to attack that a little bit differently and address the rapist and show you what God has to think about the rapist. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 25 through 27. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he met her in the open country and through the betrothed woman, and though the betrothed woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. So here we see how God views rape. In this instance, it is equivalent to murder. Because again, you are stealing the glory that God has provided to that woman. And maybe we don't take this seriously enough in today's culture. Now, with abortion, I'm not able to address the complexities that go into that as well. Okay? But again, it's about the motive and what's driving the heart behind making those decisions. And I will go into that here in a little bit later. The last piece, the last uh, topic that I'm going to bring up that this command does prohibit is euthanasia. Euthanasia. As Greg mentioned last Sunday, we are responsible for taking care of our elderly. We are responsible for caring for them. And euthanasia is another example of self-murder. So let's get in now to the motive and the driving force behind why these things God views, God tells us is wrong through this command, you shall not murder. Ultimately, murder is satanic. Let me explain. There's no such thing as illegitimate life. There's no such thing as illegitimate life. Going down this line of reasoning, suggesting that there is such a thing as illegitimate life, makes us out to be the authority of life, which ultimately makes us out to be God. We get to choose the, the, uh, the dignity for certain kinds of life and certain kinds of human beings. This logic is nothing short of satanic and leads to death. The reason why I say it's satanic is because you're elevating yourself to the place of God, saying, I am God. It's Just go back and look at Isaiah chapter 12. 
I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, where you see Satan being quoted as saying, I will rise to the throne and I will take the place of God. That's the mindset. We start to we start to categorize what life is worth it and what life is not, and what life is legitimate and what life is not. But if God's creating it and God's taking the time to make it, suggesting that it's illegitimate is looking to God and saying, what you've done is wrong. What you've done is illegitimate. What kind of authority does that give us? Which is why I tell you it's satanic. It's the same exact thing that Lucifer did before his fall. Now, let me be clear. This sounds like I'm condemning anyone who has dealt with this. And that is not my intent. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm simply calling out sin as it has been presented to us. We're going to see later there is hope for the sinner. We all know that. But we're going to talk about that here in a minute. God is the one who condemns, and he has the, opportunity, he has the right to do that. Too often, though, the church condemns rather than identifying that this is sin that we all struggle with. Rather than condemn, the church has a role in serving those who struggle with this. We must protect life. And too often, we stand idly by. So if someone is struggling with suicide, we should intervene. We should recognize it, that it's demonic. And that that person is dealing with something greater than themselves. We should intervene. If someone is struggling with whether or not to abort, we must intervene. Condemning sin, which we might condemn sex outside of marriage and say, I'm not going to support that woman. That is wrong because now you're neglecting the child. You're neglecting the life, which is negligent homicide. Think about it. So rather than condemning sin, we need to be careful at not causing the cost of life through negligence. Remember, there's no such thing as illegitimate life. There is no such thing as illegitimate life. If we truly believe God is creator and God as the maker of life, there is no such thing as illegitimate life. Too often the church is passive, which is why the government has stepped in and started legislating morality. It's simply trying to fulfill the role of the church because more often than not, the church is not doing its job. Now let's see what Jesus had to say about this. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. This is uh, his sermon on the mount. Jesus says, and starting with verse 21 there in Matthew chapter 5, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, 
will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Okay, so can anyone really say they don't have an anger problem? I mean, how often are we, you know, caught in traffic and we get cut off and we say, oh, that guy cut me off. Our anger, think about this, our anger is rooted in being personally offended. Our anger is rooted in being personally offended. And who are we worshiping in that moment? Who are we worshiping? At home, we might say, oh, my kids just, they don't obey me. Or I'm so disrespected. Again, who's the focus on? Rather than being upset that we're personally offended, righteous anger is being, being upset that God has offended. Worshiping ourselves in that moment, again, I'm being very clear. I'm not trying to be dis- or, uh, inconsiderate, but according to Scripture, anything that takes the place of worship of God is satanic. As Satan tries to steal or steal God's worship, this line of reasoning, focusing on me, putting myself above God, in the place of God, is satanic. Our anger, like I said earlier, if we are to be angry at all, should be rooted in the worship of God and him being offended. Now, if we noticed in, uh, uh, let's see, verse 26 here, well, actually the verses 23 through 25, Jesus even goes so far to state that in addition to us working to eliminate anger in our hearts, we should strive to prevent and alleviate it in others. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Be reconciled to your brother. So in other words, let's try to alleviate the anger and eliminate it from everyone. Kevin DeYoung in his book, The Ten Commandments, says, as we see in verse uh, in chapter 5, verse 26 here, which is that last, should be that last verse that's up there, truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. If you don't strive to eliminate your anger and instead insist on pouring out the cup of your wrath, you have another cup to drink. Jesus says you will never get out until you pay the last penny. So we have all had this cup of wrath. You know what I'm talking about. The buildup of bitterness or anger or envy. Which, since we've all had this cup, none of us are exempt. 
Which then means that, by extension, none of us are exempt from failing at following the sixth commandment. You should not murder. So what hope do we have? Our hope is in Christ. Amen? Chapter Matthew chapter 26. And this will be where I close. Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. I'm not going to read the whole passage there. I want to focus in on one verse. And Jesus says uh, in verse 42, uh, Matthew records, again, for the second time, he went away, being Jesus, went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Three times in this passage from 36 through 46, Jesus is approaching God and saying, I don't want to drink this cup. But if I have to, I will. Your will be done. Because this is what not must be done. If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So what's the cup here? What's the cup in this case that Jesus is referring to? It's God's cup of wrath for sinners. Like us. We deserve that cup. But Jesus took it upon himself. Jesus, the one who never committed any sin, who never murdered anyone, was murdered for angry murderers like us. All of us have poured out our cup of wrath onto others at one point or another. But only only Jesus drank that cup for us. And because of this, hear me very clearly, the grace of God and thus forgiveness is available, even for murderers. Grace is available, and Jesus' death on the cross can cover everything that we've just talked about. Turn to him. Run to him. We need him. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. And by showing us your infinite love and coming here to us, to be with us, to teach us, to live a perfect life, and then to die for us. Father, we're reminded, I'm reminded and convicted that I'm unworthy on my own. And I just thank you so much for viewing me through your son and what he did on the cross so that I could receive forgiveness and so each one of us could have the opportunity to receive forgiveness and to be saved. You gave us these Ten Commandments as a way for us to see who we are and what we do. It's a mirror for us to see the sin in our lives. Thank you for dying for us. And more importantly, thank you for raising yourself from the grave. <laughs> the resurrection is a reminder for us and to look forward to the coming day where we will get to be with you forever, eternally. We thank you, Father. Thank you for your word and the time today. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.